Amen. Let's pray one more time together. Father, uh, again, we thank you so much for your faithfulness. Thank you that when we are faithless, you remain faithful. You are the faithful one. You are faithful, Lord, to a thousand generations, and you will be faithful to your people even in the end at the eschaton. Lord, when when the Antichrist is revealed, the man of sin, the man of lawlessness, when the great apostasy takes place, when times come upon this earth, as even Jesus taught, such as has never been before the world was. Lord, we believe in what your word declares, that this world is headed towards an inevitable tribulation, a time of great trouble and cataclysmic events that will unfold on the scene of human history. And yet, Lord, you tell us not to fear. You tell us that you have given us peace, that you have left us peace because you have overcome the world. And so today, Lord, we pray, give us access to that peace. Remind us of that peace, Lord. Give us the peace that surpasses all understanding and that rule inside of our heart even as we look out at a troubled world even now, a world that is under the influence of the evil one where every aspect of this world seems to remind us of that influence. Help us to see that we look to a new heavens and a new earth wherein dwells righteousness. We ask your help now, Lord. Carry us, Lord, in this hour. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, we are back in uh, the book of Thessalonians again, Second Thessalonians. I'm so excited to be back in this, and uh, that was a good time for me to be able to prepare, uh, spend some time studying, catch up on some studies, and prepare some curriculum for Sunday school. And by the way, uh, Sunday school has just been such a great, great time, and uh, just look forward to that every week. But uh, this uh, text in front of us here is, is really remarkable, not just because for me personally, I've never actually taught directly on the doctrine of the Antichrist. Uh, just looking back, 12 years and I've never really taught directly on the subject of Antichrist. And really, this is probably the most explicit eschatological texts that I have ever preached through at least systematically, uh, through the Bible. And it's remarkable, and uh, it is worthy of our uh, attention. And uh, what, what we have here, though, is the Apostle Paul laying out his doctrine of the day of the Lord. And that is really what is at foot here. If you remember, in the context, there were those within the church that were trying to deceive the church into thinking that in some way or in some form or in some fashion, the day of the Lord was so impending, or maybe even perhaps that it had already happened, that the believers could expect to be caught off guard. But that was not the case. The Apostle Paul is making the case that actually several signs need to precede the day of the Lord, the coming of Jesus Christ. And really, two principally. First was the apostasy that he talks about, and then it was the revelation of the man of lawlessness or the man of sin. Let's read verse 3 together. That is our focus today. Verse 3. 
It says, let no one in any way deceive you, for it, that is the day of the Lord, will not come unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. Now, admittedly, this is a hard stop. This is a This is a hard place to stop because immediately uh, in verse 4 we are introduced to the activity of the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself above every uh, above every so-called god or ob- object of worship etc etc but before we get to the actual activity of the antichrist we can learn about antichrist from his anticipation, and so there's a lot here by way of introduction. Uh, this is a, again, this is all written, just to remind you and just to flash back, all eschatology in the Bible for the Christian is written for the express purpose to comfort God's people. It's not meant to scare you. Uh, it's not meant to turn you into a conspiracy theorist. Got plenty of those running around the church. Not this church. No, never. But in the church, the evangelical church at large, as I mentioned last time, it got so bad during Y2K. Remember, they were selling generators in the parking lot of churches and like doomsday preppers. The church turned into a bunch of doomsday preppers. That's not what the day of the Lord stuff is about. Eschatology and and the reason why the Apostle Paul goes into such great detail talking about these things is to show us that yes, that the great tribulation and the the terrible times, uh, the day of the Lord in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament rather, is described as a time of trouble, as a day of, of horror, as the great and awful, terrible day of the Lord because of the things that are certainly coming upon this world. But the whole purpose for Paul engaging this now is to remind you and I that that we have an indissoluble hope, that our hope does not fall apart in the face of such daunting realities that are coming upon the world, but that in fact, that, that the very coming of these things is a sign that we are nearing our redemption. And so it is here. When the Apostle Paul talks about the day of the Lord, he doesn't want the church to be deceived. He doesn't want the church to be confused. And so he points to two objective signs that point to the fact that the day of the Lord cannot possibly take place until these two things at least have to transpire. Number one, the great apostasy. You know, Jesus in the Olivet Discourse where he outlines all sorts of features dealing with the last days and uh, dealing with the nature of the world up until the time of his return. Jesus mentions that in the last days, the analogy that we can grab onto or the one that he uses to help us and to illustrate before us what it is that the world will be like prior to the return of Christ, Jesus takes us to the days of Noah. Turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 24 just to see that. He gives us many parables, many examples for us to try to understand and to try to comprehend what the last days will be like. And one of the things he does is he takes us to the world that then was. That's what Peter calls it, the world that then was, which is the day 
the days of Noah. Because, Jesus says, just like the days of Noah were, so will it be in the time when the Son of Man comes back. In other words, it was that period of time when the world had become so iniquitous, so violent, so depraved in every way, that it reached a boiling point of depravity where the only solution was for God to literally wipe the world off the face of the earth, mankind off the face of the earth, and in a sense start all over again. Look at verse 20, uh, uh, chapter 24, beginning of verse 37. He says, For the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. In other words, it will be life as usual. People think they have all day. They fail to see the sign of the times. And they did not understand um, until the flood came and took them all away. So will the coming of the Son of Man be. Same thing that he talks about in the first letter in chapter 5 when he says, in a sense, that the world is asleep. In other words, they are in a state of spiritual uh, 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 darkness. They are, they are lacking the understanding. They, they're, they're, they're lacking the perception to see that these things are coming. And spiritually, because they lack regeneration, because they don't have salvation, they don't have Jesus, of course, they will perish. They will be totally unprepared. But as we think about the days of Noah, during that time, the days of Noah were a time where the righteous were scarce. It was a time when the gospel was completely out of fashion, when Noah was mocked for his preaching, mocked for his belief in the end of the world. I think that's coming again. I think it's here in part, and we'll talk about that, but I think that's coming again, the time when the preaching of God's Word will be completely unpopular, when Christianity will be totally opposed, and if anything, the world will be united around sin. Jesus is highlighting the apostate condition of the world at that time, the time right before His return, just like Paul does. And even though that will be a time that will be characterized by wars and rumors of wars, earthquakes, diseases, boy, it doesn't take a lot of imagination for us to connect the dots, does it? I was just listening to a Ph.D. give a lecture on the real danger of an electric magnetic pulse being unleashed on America and the devastation that that will immediately cause and how quickly a nation can completely debilitate us so that we are altogether without uh, you know, military options. It was just fascinating. I mean, this guy's got a PhD in the subject and uh, and it was terrifying to think about what he was talking about. But I thought, you know, this is exactly what Jesus is talking about. I, don't, I mean, I, I never thought he'd be talking about EMPs, but he's talking about wars and rumors of wars. And here is a gentleman who is a, a scholar in the field of how easy it is for a country or even a rogue entity like a terrorist group to just, you know, send a, some kind of magnetic pulse into our electrical grid. And just next thing you know, all the little 
crystal balls in our pockets we call cell phones. They don't work anymore. Your Tesla doesn't drive anymore. Your internet doesn't turn on. You know, the, uh, the, the dams and the lakes that we depend on for water, they don't operate anymore because they work on, uh, uh, they work on uh, computers. You know, and I thought, okay, this is, this is exactly, I mean, it sounds like a sci-fi movie or something, but this is a real, actual threat. It doesn't take a lot of imagination for us to connect the dots that this is all possible, that everything that Jesus was talking about, the wars, the rumors of wars, the earthquakes, the diseases, all of this stuff is a world that can get there very, very quickly. But the world will not be prepared. That's Paul's entire point. Not only is the world not going to be prepared, the world will actually scoff. Isn't it amazing that we live in a world with such, with such cataclysmic events. I mean, earthquakes on a scale that is just unimaginable. I remember uh, actually being up on that Christmas morning where that terrible earthquake struck. And, uh, or was it Christmas or that's, was that the Indian earthquake? But one of those earthquakes in Japan where they had the great tidal, the, the, the tsunami that hit. And I remember watching the live footage live footage that they never repeated again on the news. They actually never showed the footage that I saw again of people running in the fields from the ocean and the, just being swallowed up by the, wa- by the waves. It was, I'm like, I'm sitting there with, you know, Trish and I and a couple others were there. We're looking at, is this real? We're looking at this? I mean, this is not Steven Spielberg. This is happening. This is a really happening on the earth. It is. Absolutely. Matter of fact, Paul, uh, Jesus actually mentions that in the Gospel of Luke, that people will see the, the waves of the sea and their hearts will fail because of apparently some tsunami that is going to take place. And even in the face of all of that, in the face of all the diseases, in the face of Ebola, in the face of swine flu, in the face of pandemics, in the face of terrorism, in the face of a nuclear age, even in the face of all these things, man in his sinful condition mocks God and scoffs at God and mocks the reality of his coming and the reality of the eschaton. This is why it will come upon them like a thief. In every way, they will be totally spiritually unfit and unprepared, susceptible to the deception of Antichrist. Jesus actually talked about in Luke chapter 8, if you look there in Luke chapter 8, verse 8, or I can just read it to you, talk about this whole concept as you think about the days of Noah. I mean, we're reduced down to eight people, eight faithful. Everyone else is swallowed up in a flood. Yeah, you feel like you're all alone. You want to talk about the underground church. Go talk to Noah. Ask him how he felt. Probably felt the same way that Lot fell with Sodom. Matter of fact, Jesus says it will get so bad that when the Son of Man comes, question, hypothetical, will He find faith on the earth? That brings us precisely to what we're talking about here with the Apostle Paul. One of the signs that will precede the coming of Christ, the day of the Lord, will be that there will be some sort of great, distinct apostasy that will be unleashed on planet earth. And that's, a, that's incredible. There will be some great falling away. Uh, all the professors will be exposed by having never had faith. It's almost like 
the parable of the sower, Matthew chapter 13, what it teaches us is exactly what Paul's talking about. Given the right conditions, it doesn't take much for the For those who have never really taken root, where the soil, the seed never really took root in the soil, all it takes is the right conditions to show that it was false soil, which is representative of the human heart, that never, despite everything that was on the surface, despite all of the so-called evidence, despite all of the so-called signs of grace in someone's life, given the right situation, their faith will crumble and the apostasy will ensue. This is not hard to see. It's not hard to see at all. I was having a friendly debate with a friend who, friendly debate with a friend, we're still friends, but we were debating the nature of Christianity around the world. And I say, well, you got to understand that much of what's around the world, particularly the third world, that though Christianity is numbered in the millions and millions that much of what's out there is really, really bad Christianity. For example, in the third world, the third world is rampant with the prosperity gospel, with the word of faith theology. And not only that, but there's also the influence of Pentecostalism, which is really just in many corners of the world, just a wild and wacky mysticism. It's not hard to see that when millions of untold professing believers around the world have built their theological house on sand, that it doesn't, it's not hard to imagine that given the right conditions that that house will come crumbling down, crumbling down. That's not to say that just because you have a sound church, that's not to say that just because you believe in sound theology that you are automatically saved or that you are automatically assured not to fall away or that that church or that group of churches is not automatically susceptible to apostasy. It is. But let's, uh, let's try to define what we're talking about here. We are not talking about apostasy in an ultimate sense. We're not talking about those who actually possess saving faith in Jesus Christ and one day will lose saving faith in Jesus Christ, which would be tantamount to losing salvation or losing eternal life. You cannot lose eternal life. The apostasy that we're talking about is the apostasy of Judas. The apostasy that we're talking about is permanent apostasy. Apostasy that shows, as John says in 1 John chapter 2, uh, verse 19, that you were never of us to begin with. In the Bible, there are two types of apostasies. There is permanent apostasy represented by people like Judas, and then there is temporary apostasy represented by people like Peter, who though he denied the Lord, Jesus assured him because of his intercession, because he was his mediator, that he would return. But what Paul envisions here is some sort of serious apostasy on a global level. Again, it's not hard to see this even in the West, even here where we have hook, line, and sinker. We have believed in the gospel of easy believism, market-driven, seeker-sensitive Christianity, therapeutic preaching, liberalism, dead orthodoxy, ecumenicalism, countless non-denominational churches who refuse to define themselves doctrinally and preach with little or no conviction of sin. Ah, It's almost like in every age you can say that the conditions for apostasy are there. I mean, we rewind 
back to church history. I mean, you go back to the Dark Ages when the Catholic Church uh, became the Roman Catholic Church somewhere in those centuries, maybe 5th century all the way to 8th century, or somewhere in that time frame, going into the medieval time, the Roman Catholic Church was comprised largely of apostate religion, even as it is now. And is it any wonder, therefore, that the Reformers did not hesitate to identify Rome as Babylon the Great and the papacy as the seat of Antichrist, actually the Pope, as the Antichrist himself. But as we consider these two signs, we should never ever forget that God is absolutely sovereign over all these things. Just look in your text here. In second chapter 2 here, he actually goes on to say precisely that. He talks about the Antichrist and the coming of his influence, the manifestation of his power according to Satan, the, the signs and false wonders. And then in verse 11, he says, For this reason God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they will believe what is false. Don't believe that for a second that God is not in control. When it literally seems on earth as if all hell has broken loose, never forget who sits upon the throne. He will never lose control. And he will never lose his people, his elect. They are the apple of his eye and they are in the grip of his hand. They cannot be forsaken and will not be forsaken and no one can take them out of his hand, even as Jesus taught in John chapter 10. Although it may seem in the last days that we are all alone and that there is a famine of faith, God knows his people and he delays over them in patience so that so, so as to assure their salvation. Let, let me give you a couple scriptures on that. In Luke chapter 18, Jesus uses a term in two ways. Uh, the New Testament uses a term in two ways in a related context. First, Jesus. Luke chapter 18, in verse 6, it says, Hear what their unrighteous judge says. He's talking about the persistent widow there. That Because she keeps coming to the judge. The judge finally says, okay, here, I'll give you what you want. And, what he's, and the analogy is this, is that if the widow is persistent and gets what she wants, how much more God's people, as Jesus says here, what about the elect who cry to God day and night, will he delay over them, uh, will he delay long over them? I tell you that he will bring about justice for them quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Isn't that interesting that that's the context in which this is found? And then if you jump down to 2 Peter chapter 3, the same word that he uses there for delay long over them. That same Greek word is used almost in a positive sense here in 2 Peter 3, 9, where it says that the Lord is not slow about His promise. What promise? The promise, the promise of His return, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you. That's the word. Same exact uh, uh, Greek word that's used here, makrothumeo. He is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all would come to repentance. If that is something of a parallel there, then that would just reinforce the interpretation that those who will not perish is the elect of Luke 18. God does all things for the sake of the elect, even as Paul did in 2 Timothy 2.10. But in terms of the visible church, there will be an eschatological division, some sort of exposure of false Christianity rooted in false faith, false faith and the rejection or perversion of the truth. Let's see that. 2 Timothy chapter 3. Turn there. Actually, in the 
in the pastoral epistles, there's a couple texts that speak of this. But first, let's go to 2 Timothy chapter 3, because I think it's so descriptive of the age that is coming. The situation, what it's going to look like. It's already begun. It will reach an intensified tipping point, I think, right before the coming of Christ. Beginning in verse 1, it says, But realize this in the last days. And so now you know exactly what you're talking about. In the last days, difficult times will come. And that's a bad translation. I don't know what translation you have in your Bible. But the word difficult, that's a very domesticated translation of that Greek word. That Greek word is used of the demoniac in the gospel who came out of the cave, cutting and hurting himself. And a better translation is fierce. Fierce times will come. And men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding a form of godliness, whoa, some spirituality involved in all that evil. that surprising to you? They have a form of godliness. There is some sort of, some sort of external profession that is being made. Folks, this is not just under the banner of atheism. That's what makes this so sinister is because they try to mingle it with, with faith, with, the, with spirituality. They try to profess some form of godliness, although they deny its power. Avoid such men as these. See, faith is just a faith is just like an ornament on your life. It's just a, you know, it's something auxiliary to life itself. It's just sort of, you know, the man upstairs theology. That's wrong. I can't help to think as we read about these types of vices or negative virtues. Verse 3 says that they will be brutal. See that word? It's almost like Paul is groping. Paul is reaching for language to adequately describe a future state and throughout this entire present age This is an adequate description of the type of world that we live in, but imagine it in hyperdrive. Put it in the light speed as we reach the eschaton. It will be beyond your wildest dreams, is what Paul is saying. Not hard to imagine when just, you know, this past week or two, I watched a governor of Virginia talk about in such candid terms, in such just... You want to talk about brutal. I mean, I'm talking about a seared conscience where a governor on a radio show can sit there and say, I'll tell you exactly how we would go through the process of aborting a nine-month-year-old infant. He even called it an infant. He says, I'll tell you exactly what would happen. We'd give birth. It would come out. We'd place it on a table so that the infant is comfortable. And then a conversation would take place between the mother and the doctor, and a decision would be made whether to resuscitate or... What? You guys, 
this is where we're at in our world right now at this age. Can you imagine what the end is going to look like? If we're reaching at the place now where we're, we're in the open and in the public square talking about leaving a baby on a table and sitting there having a conversation as to whether or not to resuscitate it or not. We have lost our national moral mind. This world, listen, understand where I am when it comes to these issues. I am in no way to be characterized as a post-millennialist. I am in no way to be characterized as a theonomist. I don't believe the Ten Commandments should govern America. I don't think the church should overthrow the government and rule the world. I don't think that that's what the Bible teaches in any way, shape, or form. But we do see that sin is a reproach on any nation. And when sin of this gravity is, you know, lauded around, flaunted shamelessly. I, I tell you, I, I, we grow up and say, like, yeah, I see what Paul's saying here. Brutal. Haters of what is good. There's no other language for it. Ah, we know the world is going that way. We know the world is already reaching those proportions, but uh, turn with me to the first letter, first, first Timothy chapter 4, going on with this whole issue of apostasy. It's not difficult to envision what the Apostle Paul is talking about and how it is, all of this is sort of encroaching and escalating as time goes on. In 1 Timothy 4, beginning in verse 1, it says, The Spirit explicitly says that in latter times some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits, which their spirits are actually, is actually code for false teachers, and doctrines of demons by means of the hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. It will be those who are hell-bent on deceiving, actively and uh, intentionally deceiving, and people will deceive. They will want that. They will, they will yearn for it with itching ears. They'll want, as Jeremiah even prophesied, when he says, you know, don't speak to us hard sayings. Speak to us smooth words. Right? What did he say? He says, Jeremiah made this indictment on the children of Israel who were completely apostate at this time. He says, you know, uh, the, the, the prophets, you know, they prophesy falsely, and my people love to have it so. That's how diabolical this will all get. It is not without its own order, however, because all of this end-time apostasy, all of this end-time deception will be gathered underneath the Antichrist. And that's the next thing. Not only does he say that apostasy has to come first. It says, and then the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. And so what needs to precede the coming of Jesus Christ? The, the coming of the Antichrist. And, um, and it's not hard to see that the Antichrist can assume power in a world just like this. It's, you know, we can say that the doctrine of the Antichrist, the revelation of the Antichrist is mysterious, it's controversial, it's perplexing, all of that. We can understand, however, something about the Antichrist very clear from his titles. Notice how he is described. He is the man of lawlessness and he is the son of destruction. 
The fact that he is the man of lawlessness means, first and foremost, that he is characterized by offending God and breaking his law. Why do I say that? Because that's what lawlessness means. It means anemia. It means no law. It means that he will seek to completely usurp the law of God. I mean, we're talking about the personification of everything that contradicts God and his glory. He is sin incarnate. Consequently, through his influence and satanic origin, the Antichrist produces sin all over the world. He'll seek to harness the present evil age, to harness its power, to direct its power, and direct all of that, all those diabolical forces of his towards the Lamb and the saints. Revelation chapter 13, verse 7. Revelation, by the way, will be in Revelation a lot here in the, in the coming weeks as you can tell, I'm, I'm, really, uh, I'm really going at light speed here in the text. But in the coming weeks, multiple weeks, I, thought, I laughed at myself last night because I thought, boy, I don't know, this is crazy. I outlined my next eight sermons. Uh, not, not, not the outline of each sermon. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, I outlined the text. I took this text, whatever we got left here. And so we got at least eight sermons on Antichrist. So I hope, and the and eschatology, so I hope that excites you, that doesn't disappoint you, but in Revelation chapter 13, verse 7, as we read the, there about the Antichrist who is called the beast, it says, it was also given to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. You guys following me? The Antichrist will be given the power to make war against the church and overcome the church, overcome them. In what sense? Well, I, I think in a, in a very serious sense. He was given authority over every tribe and people and tongue and nation that was given to him. He is the man of lawlessness because, as we will see, he wants to see sin prevail all over the world. This will have a very, very practical application here in a moment. His vision is to reign over the world of iniquity, a world under satanic dominion, a world that is mystified by His power and His glory. This is what the signs and wonders are all about. Not that we know what they are exactly, we don't, but that we know that through these false signs, the beast, the Antichrist, will seek to bring the whole world under subjugation to His lordship. Again, verse 9 of Thessalonians the one whose coming is in accordance with the activity of Satan, with all power and signs and false wonders. The activity of uh, the signs and wonders is also explained in conjunction with the second beast of Revelation. That is the false prophet. I think this is kind of the reason why people get so confused when they study eschatology is they have, you know, all these beasts and all these horns and ten kings and ten horns and ten beasts. And, <laughs> and then you get lost. It's like, I, I don't know. What's that? What did, you, what did John see again? I don't know. Uh, it's pretty prolific, actually, what he saw. But keep your eye on this, that there will be two beasts in the book of Revelation. One is the Antichrist. The other one is the false prophet, this spiritual figure of some sorts that will work signs and wonders on behalf of the Antichrist. And he'll do that so that the whole world will want to pled, pledge their allegiance to the beast. Look at Revelation thirteen eleven again. It says, Then I saw another beast coming out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb. And he spoke as a dragon. By the way, the two horns like a lamb actually goes back to the imagery that uh, Daniel saw 
in uh, the book of Daniel where there he sees the Antichrist in terms of a goat or a lamb. Uh, uh, The book of Revelation can only be interpreted by the Old Testament, let me tell you. Uh, In order to understand Revelation, you have to study uh, Daniel, Ezekiel, uh, the prophets. They are the key that unlocks the imagery, uh, the perplexing imagery of Revelation. Uh, He exercises all authority over the first beast in his presence, and he makes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast whose fatal wound was healed. Uh, And again, some people actually think that this fatal wound that was healed is actually referring back to Nero. Nero historically was supposedly revived from a deadly wound, and that somehow is taken by theologians as the fulfillment of what John saw. There's some merit to that. There's possibility there. But one thing to keep your eye on is that any, any historical figure that seems to occupy the doctrine of Antichrist is always and but a precursor to the Antichrist. That's what I believe. That's my eschatology. My eschatology is that whether you're talking about Nero, whether you're talking about Titus, whether you're talking about, you know, in ancient Babylon, uh, the king of Tyre, whoever you're talking about is is always a precursor to the main thing, is but a shadow of the fulfillment of it all. And this is some major uh, controversial stuff we're dealing with here, uh, but I don't have any other choice but just to give it to you just the way that it is in all of its marvelous complexities. Rewind the tape. Go back and listen to it again. He performs great signs so that even he makes fire to come down out of heaven to the earth in the presence of men. And he deceives those who dwell on earth because the signs which, which it was given to him to perform in the presence of the beast, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who had the wound of the sword and has come to life. And it was given to him to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast would even speak and cause as many as do not worship the image of the beast to be killed. So this leads us to the next title. He's not just the son of law, or the, the man of lawlessness. He is the son of destruction. He causes destruction, and he himself will be destroyed. I like what, uh, I like what Kim Riddlebogger says in his book on the Antichrist. He says, like Jesus Christ, the Antichrist will be a figure of history. He is not merely a figment of Christian imagination. He will have a name and a face, and he will be cast into the lake of fire by none other than Jesus Christ. I like that. In my book, I said, yeah. (laughs) Amen. Therefore, as the son of destruction, he has a close association with destruction. MacArthur says, yeah, I'm, I'm quoting MacArthur here. He's not wrong about everything. And if I were in his presence, I'd say he's right about almost everything. But... He says a lot of good things about the Antichrist, even though I I, I reject his overall scheme. He says, the Antichrist will be so completely devoted to to the destruction of all that relates to God's purpose and plan that he can be said to be destruction personified. He, however, belongs to destruction as one who will be destroyed. He is fixed for punishment and judgment. He is human trash for the garbage dump of hell. You don't want to know what I put in my book after that. (laughs) You get him, MacArthur. The Antichrist, 
the man of lawlessness, the son of perdition, will come, and it will be my job to try to belabor this point and to demonstrate this point, but he will come into this world and he will attempt to exercise his antichrist lordship over the system of this world. And that system in the Bible is called Babylon. Babylon. I've been studying this because I knew that in preparation for this these sermons that are ahead of me, I knew that Babylon was very important. And so just to kind of whet your appetite and to prepare you for this, I leave you with a question today. Do you see Babylon? Can you see Babylon? Do you see it? Do you? The Antichrist will come as an extension of Satan. He will be Satan's puppet. He is Satan's man, his representative, the, the ancient serpent, the anti-lord that first emerged in the garden. The influence of the Antichrist and the actual outworking of his reign of terror will take place in this world on the stage of actual human history. Now, the nature of his rule, however, is a principle that we really need to grasp because it's already not yet. Kind of like Jesus. He's antichrist for a reason, folks. He tries to imitate Christ. He tries to be like Christ, but only in a diabolical antithesis. And like Jesus, his rule, Jesus' reign, Jesus' kingdom, Jesus' kingdom is already not yet. There's a dynamic there. But so too, Antichrist, his influence is presented in Scripture as an already not yet reality. For example, not yet do we see him. Not yet has Antichrist arrived. Not yet has he been revealed or manifested and his power taken dominion over the world. Just as Jesus was anticipated until we finally knew his name. Antichrist will be anticipated until we see his face and know his name. Not yet do we see the worldwide persecution of the church, although persecution in many places, in many ways, is very grave. We still, for the moment, you are living witnesses of this, we still, for the moment, operate with relative ease in this world. You came to church today, got in your car, came to Sunday school, some of you guys, we come, fellowship, we're safe, we got nice buildings protecting us, man, even we get protesters outside, we just call the cops, man, we're, we're pretty, we, we got it pretty good, and I know that all over the world there is uh, persecution, but even then, it's not the same as that which is to come under the beast. The already aspect of this is also very critical, though. Scripture tells us that many antichrists are already in the world, that the mystery of lawlessness, look at uh, your text of verse 7, the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. It's already working. Already we see the formulation in the formation of Babylon. What is Babylon? Many people commit the error of asking, where is Babylon? Oh, and I've heard it all. Oh, America's Babylon, because you see, with the Great Lakes, it kind of sits on seven waters, and that's not what it is, folks. 
It's not America. It's not Russia. It's not the Middle East. It's not the European Union. It's not even a global institution like the United Nations. I don't believe that. Those who are thinking this way are asking, where is Babylon? But this misses the question because Babylon is not somewhere. It is everywhere. Babylon is not found in something. It is in everything. Babylon is ultimately comprised, listen very carefully here, by, it's, it's comprised of this. The socioeconomic world order, the world power, the state-sponsored religion and spirituality that now prevails the world. That spiritual economic system which the world deems good and acceptable as long as it does not submit to and exalt Jesus Christ, that is the world system that the world will gladly submit to. That's what unites them. Is it any wonder that Babylon is mainly described in the Bible based on the things that it provides you and not where it resides? What does it provide you? Everything. Just read Revelation 17 and 18. What does Babylon provide you? Huh. It's all around us. Ready? Food. Some of your stomachs are grumbling even now. Music. Fashion. Industry, sex, luxury, comfort, convenience, cargoes of gold and silver, transportation, precious stones. Do you know how valuable the silver that goes inside of your cell phones are? It's a really valuable commodity on planet Earth right now. They're talking about mining, you know, Africa. Some people are talking about mining the moon to get those precious stones to keep our technology working. This is all in Revelation. Gold, silver, transportation, precious metals, discovery, because it talks about those who go out into the sea and are, are exploring. Entrepreneurship, because business is, business is humming under the Antichrist. Autonomy. All of these things are provided to us by Babylon. And so when it falls, what do you hear in the book of Revelation? People weep for what? For Babylon. Why? Where? It's not where. It's because without Babylon, we got nothing. No clothes, no food, no transportation, no internet. Nothing. All of it, all the whole system comes crashing down. Where is the Antichrist going to rule and preside? He's going to preside over this world system in some way. The Antichrist Antichrist is going to arise to rule over a world and he will be the grand broker of the world's lusts and desires and dependencies. Just eat from the fruit that he offers and how it will be offered to you. Think with me for a moment. Was there anything inherently evil about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? No, no, no. You can't say that. Because just before that, it says everything was very good. Genesis 1, 2. Everything was very good. Is there anything inherently evil about the fruit that the serpent 
extended, in a sense, offered to Eve. No, nothing wrong with it. Probably a very good fruit. Probably tasted good. But when he's the one offering it to you, comes with a catch. (laughs) I give it to you, but in return, I only ask you to give me one thing, your allegiance. Follow me. Turn your back on the word of God. Turn your back on the covenant that God made with you. Make a better covenant with me, and I'll give you access to everything. Matter of fact, you eat from the fruit that I give you, you will be like God. Matter of fact, you just submit to the system that I'm creating you, and I will give you global access to everything that you can dream of in this world. And I don't know what that is, brothers and sisters, because I'm not a date setter. So I don't know, 100 years from now, 200 years from now, Forget a Tesla when you can just fly around like the Jetsons. I don't know. It could be beyond our wildest dreams. We have no guarantee this is not going to go on for another thousand years. My suspicion is is that it's not. How do we prepare? How do we prepare? I am a uh, post-tribulational guy. That's my position. (laughs) Jesus Christ will return after the tribulation, not before. He will not secretly rapture us out of the world. No, because it says right here, we just read it, the beast is going to make war with the saints, and that war will go on with the church for a while until he persecutes the church everywhere and tries to stamp it out all over the world. How do we do this, guys? How do we survive the reign of Antichrist? I'm going to tell you right now. Turn with me in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 12. How do we do this? How do we prepare for this? What is the solution? There is only one solution, and you already know what it is. Let me put it in the language of Revelation. Brothers and sisters, listen to me. Do not love your life unto death by faith in Jesus Christ. That's the answer. How do I do it? How do I withstand all of the temptation, all, the, all of the, the deception that is coming? I mean, you ever think how weak you are? I, I, hope, I hope our temptation is not, oh, I got, don't worry about it, I got this, I won't be deceived. I don't know. I, I mean, obviously I hope that none of us will, but... According to this, the deception is going to be so, so seductive, so incredibly powerful that Jesus says, if it were possible, it would deceive even the elect. This is how close to the edge it comes. It strikes fear into the heart of the elect. Oh, you're elect. You're secure. You're going to be saved. You're going to make it. But that doesn't mean it will not still be terrifying in that time. It will. It will. What's the solution? Do not love your life unto death by faith in Jesus Christ. That's it. That's it. We're at a great disadvantage. The American church, we do not do well with this. Why? Because we do not see martyrdom before us on a regular basis like many of our brothers and sisters around the world do. They have a great advantage over us because so-and-so down the street was just murdered 
by, you know, the Taliban or ISIS or whatever. Look at what Revelation says, and I end here. Verse 10, Revelation 12, verse 10. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of His Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down. He who accuses them before our God day and night, while Jesus is our intercessor day and night, Satan is our accuser day and night. Yeah. And they overcame him because of the blood of the Lamb, because of the word of their testimony, and they did not love their life like those who loved their life in Babylon. They can't do without their things. They've got to have all the trinkets, or they just are empty without it. No, that's what life means there. It's life in this world. They didn't love their life in this world. Even when faced with death, they were willing to part with goods and kindred. For this reason, rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has come down to you, having great wrath, knowing that he has only a short time. And our time is short too. So let me pray. Ask for the Lord to bless you. Father, As believers, as those who have the spirit of the illuminating God, as those who have been granted understanding, as John says, to know all things, help us to be able to perceive when and how and if we are loving our life too much in this world, and if our hearts need to be laid bare before You. If our hearts need to be examined and to see, do we love these things more than You? Are we in love with our life here such that we are unwilling to part with it for the testimony of Jesus? Lord, I will not pretend in any way. I will not offer up any sort of pretentious faith other than to say, Oh God, help us. Strengthen us, Lord. Strengthen us like you strengthened Peter that our faith will not fail. It may not be under the reign of any Christ, but it may be in the trials and tribulations that we will each individually face in this life that have its own ability, as Jesus said, to choke out the Word. Father, give us a great discernment as we look deeper and deeper into these things and help us to understand that in knowing this, we will be children of the day, children of the light. We will not be overtaken as a thief in the night. We'll be ready. And the commandment is for us to be sober. And so we pray, oh God, I know that life has to go on. I know I know that ball games have to be played. I know that sports is exciting. I know that clothes is fun. I know that entertainment is, sometimes there's nothing wrong with it. I know that food tastes good. I know that cars can be fancy and houses can be comfortable. But help us not to bow down to these things. 
And so, God, we pray, strip the idol of Babylon from us if it's there. And prepare us, Lord, because we belong to a city whose builder and maker is God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.